There is so much to unpack in the life and times of Robert Mugabe, who recently died, a multi-decade dictator of Zimbabwe. So I'm going to take some time, I'm going to linger in this presentation. There are so many essential lessons to emerge from the history of his country and the torture he subjected it to and why. So I promise you it's going to be worthwhile, but I'm not going to rush through this. couple notes at the beginning, uh, the pronunciations may be a little off at times, and uh, the sources, of course, for this presentation will be linked below in the description. So let's get started. So the death of Robert Mugabe drew headlines calling him controversial. Controversial. Uh, just astonishing. There were opinion pieces, of course. They went for sympathetic takes like he was a hero, he was a villain, he was human. You know, hey, we, we, we all make mistakes. Sometimes I can't find my keys and sometimes people murder tens of thousands of their fellow countrymen. CNN, as you can imagine, said, from an imprisoned guerrilla fighter to his country's longest-serving leader, Mugabe's life in the public eye was nothing short of extraordinary. Now, just by the by, spoiler, Robert Mugabe was a self-described, out-and-out, committed Marxist. A Marxist-Leninist who praised Lenin, who praised Stalin, who praised the leaders of Cuba. It was, it was a huge fan of Marxism, a lifelong Marxist. But they can't say that. I actually scoured a whole bunch of articles and one passing reference in the Washington Post to Mugabe being a self-described Marxist was there, but no one else mentioned the basic, core, fundamental, functioning ideology that drove Robert Mugabe to do what he did. It's absolutely astounding. Now, of course, the mainstream media calls me far-right and even worse, and none of that is true. So they won't tell the truth about me, and they also won't tell the truth about Robert Mugabe's Marxism, which tells you everything you need to know about the ideological drivings behind the mainstream media as a whole. Now, even those who offer criticism to him are seemingly compelled to say something nice, like the longest-serving leader. Like, wow, he just managed to be so popular in Zimbabwe that they just kept re-electing him. And he just he was just he served the country. No, he served himself. He destroyed the country. God. So Mugabe ruled Zimbabwe from nineteen eighty through twenty seventeen. Was he merely controversial? Was he heroic? And what lessons can we learn from his rule? Well, if he wasn't, why does the media cover for him? We'll talk about that too. So let's start with the founding of Rhodesia. So, of course, Zimbabwe used to be called Rhodesia after Cecil Rhodes, also the guy who founded the Rhodes Scholarship. So colonial involvement in modern Zimbabwe, then called Rhodesia, of course, started in the late 19th century with the arrival of English-born Cecil Rhodes and the British South Africa Company. Rhodes and his associates sought mineral and metal rights from the Ndebele king, Logan, uh, Lobengula, who agreed to financial and material compensation, right? Because there's this story, right? And the story goes something like this. Ooh, those nasty white European Christians, they just went around the world pillaging and stealing all the resources. Well, first of all, <laughs> in, in what was Rhodesia, there wasn't a whole lot of mining going on. There really wasn't a whole lot of value in the metal as a whole. So he, the, these went to the king and they said, hey, we'll give you a huge amount of money if we can take the minerals and metals from the land. Right? That's called 
uh, tra trade, right? I mean, the, the king represents the people, so supposedly, right? And therefore, if you trade with the king, uh, if the king owns the land, then you're buying from the owner. And people say, ah, oh, well, but maybe the king didn't represent the people. Well, then you've got a problem, right? Because people in the West don't want mass immigration from the third world almost universally, and yet the leaders are doing it. And so that's kind of important as well, right? So yeah, they went and paid the king. Now, the king, Loban Gula's countrymen, accused him of selling his country, got very restive and very upset. In response, what did the king do? Well, he blamed a fellow named Lachi, an associate who had been in favor of the deal. It was him. He did it. Lachi was then accused of misleading the king, and he was executed along with over 300 of his extended family and followers. Because that's what justice looked like when the British showed up. And that's what justice, coincidentally, also looked like, in fact, even worse, after the British left. So, I mean, think of this. 300 of extended family and followers, women, children, just slaughtered because this guy didn't want to admit that he'd made a deal with the white devils. Despite this deadly conflict, King Lobangula continued to accept the monthly financial payments. And, uh, you know, this is interesting, right? Because if you look at... History, I mean, history is this one big tsunami tidal wave back and forth of tribes crashing into each other, raping women, enslaving, murdering, grabbing resources, and slaughtering farmers and stealing their crops. I mean, you name it, right? That's just the way that human history has generally worked. Now, the British were pretty civilized as far as all of this went, right? They didn't just, they certainly had the military might to slaughter all the local inhabitants, but they didn't. They wanted to trade. They offered money. And the only slaughtering that was occurring occurred within the tribe that they were dealing with. So there's this kind of idea, and it's common in Africa and other places too, that the Europeans, right, the, the Dutch, the British, you name it, they just came in and murdered all the local inhabitants, stole their land, and, and, and stole all their resources. It's just not true. I mean, it's generally not true. Like in South Africa, the land was mostly empty. There were the Khoi and the sand people who were there, but it was mostly empty, and the Dutch generally took over land that was unused and unowned and traded when necessary and, and so on. And then the uh, Zulu and the Bantu came down after wealth had been generated by the Dutch and then said, ah, oh, you stole our land, and it's all, and it's all complete nonsense. But, uh, you know, it's compelling and it provokes racial conflict, which is what some people want to do. So in 1890, Rhodes and his company sent settlers to the area. They had no incidents with the natives for over a year. Now, the first Matabele War started in July 1893 after the Ndebele attacked the Shonas, another group. The settlers became involved when they attempted to resolve the conflict. However, the meeting turned violent and the settlers dispelled the Ndebele with force. This war ended in January 1894 when King Lobangula succumbed to smallpox and the Ndebele quickly agreed to peace. Ah, smallpox. Um, it's considered... Um, weaponized, right? You, you hear the story. It was basically spread by a Marxist coincidence historian that uh, the, uh, the Europeans weaponized smallpox and used it against the indigenous population as a weapon of war uh, in North America and so on. It's false. It's absolutely false. Uh, it's completely false. And uh, <laughs> there's no evidence for it whatsoever. And uh, it's just one of these blood libels that's uh, used against whites. In March 1896, the Ndebele and Shona attacked the settlement, starting the second Matabele War. 
This war lasted through October 1897. And, of course, the whites won, right, the British won. So as a result, the British government would later acknowledge that Rhodesia was established by right of conquest, by right of conquest. So, you know, look at the various tax livestock pens around the world called countries, right? Look at that jigsaw puzzle piece, the, the sort of stained glass, literally blood-stained glass of history. How were these countries formed? They were all formed through uh, right of conquest. That's, that's, you know, that's how the Muslims got into India, killing tens of millions of people. It's just the right of conquest. And the right of conquest is accepted as the basis for human tribes, human settlements, human countries, and so on, for all races except for whites. See, when whites do it, and in this case, whites tried to trade, but then there were all these wars, and then they got attacked, and they fought back. So they were kind of victims in this sense. The right of conquest is accepted for every group except for whites. And that's part of the racism of sort of the modern world. Well, and this is other thing, too, where we send our ethics back in time. You know, DeLorean style. We, we send our ethics back in time and then hold people in the past by current ethical standards. <gasps> there was slave owning in the past. That's evil and immoral. And it's like, it's all, uh, it's a complete nonsense. It's like going to a doctor and uh, like reviewing the work of a doctor in the 17th century and saying, this was the worst doctor in the world. He never once ordered an MRI. He never once prescribed antibiotics. Like <laughs> Those things didn't exist. Ethics, morality, it's a kind of technology. Right? Do you blame the people at the Battle of Hastings for not using radar? Or why didn't they just use satellites to figure out <laughs> where their enemy was? Those, those things didn't exist. And the concept of equality under the law, the concepts of the evils of slavery, and so, it just didn't exist in the past. They did not exist. It's like blaming Neanderthals for not using space travel to, to escape the, uh, the people uh, surrounding them. I mean, it just, why didn't you teleport? <laughs> You're crazy. So anyway, I just sort of want to point that out. It's a basic fact that we need to, to deal with, right? So in order to prevent further conflict, white officials set aside land reserves for a traditional communal occupation. The black population at the time was established at 750,000 with 25 million acres of land made available. So that's not bad. And again, the British had the technology to wipe out the local population, but they didn't. They tried to trade with them when they started fighting each other and then got they dragged in the whites and then they attacked the whites. Then they just conquered the country and then set aside massive amounts of land, 25 million acres for 750,000 blacks. You look at Genghis Khan, man. <laughs> you look at, at what happened throughout history, and you'll see that this is very, uh, very civilized um, as far as ethics of conquering goes. So by referendum, the territory previously ruled under the British South Africa Company was annexed by the United Kingdom on September 12th, 1923. In 1931, Southern Rhodesia's Land Apportionment Act formalized the division of land between whites and blacks. The estimated 48,000 white residents, including 2,500 farmers, were assigned 48 million acres, while the million black residents were assigned 29 million acres and 18 million acres remained unassigned. Now, of course, this is uh, unequal, this is un but it's the right of conquest. And the whites, you know, if you want to go farm a particular area, you want land and mineral rights. And the same thing happened uh, in China with the First and Second Opium Wars when the British just wanted to trade. But the, um, the government in China wouldn't let them and subjected them to massive restrictions and extraordinary taxes and so on. So they just started fighting. 
So the British don't want to, like the, the, certainly the merchants don't want the overhead of running a country. They just want to buy the land. They want to get the mineral rights. They want to trade. That's it, right? But because there's all this violence and a tribe attacking tribe, tribe attacking whites, it's like, okay, fine, we'll just take over this area, right? And still, so as far as the right of conquest goes, you really don't know much to the local population if you're basically defending against being attacked. But uh, this is certainly, you look at this, you say, oh my gosh, this is so unfair. But again, you kind of got to compare it to other standards throughout history. And it's funny how this white guilt stuff, I mean, do you know Genghis Khan? There are statues all over Mongolia to Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan is actually on their currency. And Genghis Khan was arguably the most brutal warlord throughout all of human history. And they don't, like, who shames them for their past conquests? It's just, you know, I don't know. Guilt is an invitation to, you know, guilt in personal relationships. Like if you do something, you feel bad. It's essential to navigating and gaining trust from people and being a better person. Guilt between tribes, if you're guilty and you're facing someone who's generally of another tribe or something, someone who's hostile to you, guilt is an invitation to verbal abuse and uh, humiliation, and uh, it's uh, it's a form of self-destructive. That which is essential in your personal relationships uh, becomes uh, virtually culturally suicidal when it comes to tribe-on-tribe conflicts. Guilt is just an invitation to be bullied and uh, and attacked. So criticism of the Land Apportionment Act suggests that white residents were permitted ownership of the most fertile farmland and that the population density disparity led to the overuse of black-owned lands and the underuse of the white-owned lands. Again, these are criticisms. I haven't gone out to personally inspect things close to 100 years ago. Now, this act, this Land Apportionment Act, wasn't fully enforced until after World War II when delisted British soldiers were offered farmland as a reward for their service. For 15 years, black Africans living on white assigned land were not faced with eviction, right? So, again, right of conquest, this is the rule, this is the law, we are the government, and um, they stayed on for 15 years. Between 1945 and 1955, an estimated 85,000 black families were evicted from the white lands. By 1960, southern Rhodesia's population had skyrocketed, with the white population increasing to 230,000 and the black population increasing to 3 million rights. This is very, very important. Africa, and I'm here mostly referring to sub-Saharan Africa, is really hard to, it's really hard to live there. It's hard to farm. I mean, dryness is a, is a huge issue, even south of the Sahara. And this is why sort of the Dutch are fantastic farmers and used to working with a lot of immigrations. When the Dutch landed in South Africa, there was like the, the green thumbs were, you know, licked and pressed all over the map in terms of how fertile they made the land. But of course, it's very complicated. You need a lot of machinery. You need a lot of pumps. You need a lot of uh, irrigation. It's very, very complicated. You need to know when to plant, what to plant. Uh, you need to know how to rotate your crops. It's all very complicated, challenging, and difficult stuff. And um, population density was very low when the whites came to uh, sub-Saharan Africa. And so here, because the whites are doing such a great job of growing and, and all of that, the black population is increasing massively. Why we got 750,000 to start, goes to a million in the 30s, goes to 3 million in the 60s. And under um, apartheid in South Africa, the, 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 the black population increased 800%. The black population increased 800%. Now, if you have extra wealth and you decide not to save it, uh, not to invest, not to start a business, or, but instead you just say, well, we're just going to make more babies. Well, uh, that's a choice. I mean, it's a choice, right? But the choice has sort of economic and financial consequences. So so let's turn to Mugabe himself, because in the 60s is when he starts to 
get his mojo on, but we'll jump back to just the post-Second World War period. In 1949, Robert Mugabe won a scholarship to Fort Hare University College in South Africa. The university played a prominent role in the development of many African radicals, most notably, of course, Nelson Mandela, who, of course, is a hero to the left, but those who view his history objectively recognize him as a communist terrorist. And this university was notoriously influential in spreading communist ideas. Mugabe later described attending Fort Hare as the turning point in his life, as it was his first exposure to Marxist ideas. He frequently joined discussions with South African communists and combed through Marxist literature, right? So uh, just very, very sort of brief aside here. Different groups in a meritocracy, and the free market is a meritocracy in general, different groups end up with different economic outcomes. Again, you can't ever judge individuals by group averages, but when you look at groups, you see uh, men and women, different ethnicities, different cultures, different races, end up with different average incomes. Now, there's really great science behind all of this. This is all very well understood from a physiological uh, brain development, you name it, standpoint. This is all very well understood. Some of it has to do with environment. Some of it has to do with choices. Some of it has to do with culture. Some of it has to do with innate differences. But it's all very well understood, and it's easy to predict as to why various groups have different outcomes in a meritocracy. Now, that answer is scientific, and it's factual. The other answer is put forward by the leftists, put forward by the socialists and the Marxists, and they say... Well, the reason that your group doesn't do as well is the other group is evil and exploitive and destructive and predatory and nasty and they've been stealing from you and your ancestors for generations and you've got to go and take back what's yours. And they fill people full of fire and evil and violence and they provoke massive conflicts and this uh, happened in China as well uh, when the communists would go village to village and set the uh, farmers against those who were wealthier than them and uh, murders and thefts. And, I mean, it's chilling just how easy it is to not just poke these wounds but create these wounds. The same thing happened in the Soviet Union, right? And the kulaks, who were the wealthy farmers, were set upon by the less wealthy farmers after being provoked and instigated by the communists and just slaughtered them by the millions. So, and it's funny, you know, just these little things. I sort of think of a turning point in my life away from resentment because I started out as a socialist and... I remember I was sort of in my mid-teens, maybe 14 or so, and I was telling an older boy how, you know, the, the, the ingredients for Coke only cost a couple of pennies, but they sell the Coke for 25 cents, something like that, right? And he said, well, but the ingredients of the Coke is not the entire cost of producing it, right? You've got the labor, the factory, the taxes, the energy, the, the marketing, the, the transportation, the... And I'm like, ah, <laughs> right. Just these little things where people explain it away. Why? So people think that you have a lot of land, therefore you're rich. Uh, and and if, if I take your land, then I, I become rich. And that's not the way it works. You know, uh, it's like going to a classical piano concert at Carnegie Hall or something like that. And the guy's playing a beautiful Steinway piano, right? And you say, man, if only I had that Steinway, I could be on that stage. And it's like, no, no, no. The Steinway, you see, is an effect of his talent, his skill, his ability, his practice, you name it, right? His dedication, his sacrifice. 
And why do people end up with a lot of land when they're farmers? Well, because they're very good farmers. I mean, if you're a very good farmer, you can bid more for the land because you can make it more productive. Because you can make it more productive, you can bid more for the land, right? To take a silly example, right? So imagine there are two computers. Or there's a computer uh, out there uh, for sale on eBay, and you just happen to know it has two bitcoins on it, right? Okay, well, you're going to bid a lot more for it because you can make that computer more productive by using those bitcoins, right? So people end up with a lot of land because they're very good farmers, and that's of benefit to everyone, of benefit to everyone. You can outbid a less efficient farmer for the land because you make, can make it more productive so you can afford to pay more for it, right? So that's kind of how it works. So then you say, oh, well, that guy, he stole that house from me. He stole that wealth from me. He stole that beautiful wife from me, right? Because there's also sexual stuff involved as well, right? Your daddy's rich. Your mama's good-looking, wealthy. Men tend to get more attractive women, and that creates a lot of sexual jealousy as well as economic jealousy. And it just doesn't seem hard at all to go in there and pour venom the venom of Marxism into those wounds and say he's wealthy because he's unjust and mean and stole from you and all that, right? So, yeah, so this is, and we'll see this play out uh, as it has dozens of times over the last hundred years. So Robert Mugabe said, when I left Fort Hare, I had a new orientation and outlook. I came from a country where most black people had accepted European rule as such. Most of us believed that all that should should be done was remove our grievances from the system. After Fort Hare, there was a radical change in my views. I was completely hostile to the system. Right, right, right. In 1958, Robert Mugabe accepted a teaching job in Ghana, the first black country to gain independence. The first president of an independent Ghana was Kwame Nkrumah, a devout Marxist and future recipient of the Soviet Union's International Vladimir Lenin Peace Prize. (sighs) Not quite the same as the Nobel Prize. That was reserved for Barack Obama. Anyway, Robert Mugabe said, I went as an adventurist. I wanted to see what it would be like in an independent African state. Once there, I began to develop definite ideas. You could say that it was there I accepted the general principles of Marxism. See, studied communism, Marxist, Marxism. And again, Nelson Mandela is not referred to as a communist, not referred to as a terrorist, although he was, in fact, both things because, well, the media, (laughs) the media. So in 1960, nationalists in Zimbabwe launched the National Democratic Party, NDP. (laughs) Now, if you're here in Canada, that may ring a bell for you. Acronym coincidence, perhaps. Focused on land reform, discrimination, and demands for increased political power. So land reform is one of these Marxist dog whistles that summons the hounds of war, the hounds of hell, in fact. And land reform means stealing from the productive owners of the land and giving it to the unproductive owners, uh, unproductive new owners of the land, and it's a political process that benefits the cronies of those in power. That's really all it is, right? NDP founding member Leopold Takawira was a longtime friend of Robert Mugabe and demanded majority rule. He said, we are no longer asking Europeans to rule us well. We now want to rule ourselves. Because, you know, things were so great <laughs> before the Europeans came. I mean, it's kind of like the indigenous population in North America, called the Indians or the natives, right? I mean, before the Europeans came, they were involved in slavery, genocide, cannibalism, mass rape, endless conquest, and destroy destruction of natural resources. This whole idea that the, that the, um, the native uses every part of the buffalo is completely false. They just drive buffaloes 
off cliffs and then just eat little bits of them. And it was just absolutely catastrophic. I mean, it's the same thing with the Mayans and the Aztecs, where they would sometimes sacrifice tens of thousands of children on one particular day, sometimes by cutting out their living hearts. I mean, yeah, boy, you know, it was really tough when the Europeans came along and interfered with all that cannibalism and slavery and genocide. And oh, my gosh, how terrible. But, you know, again, the guilt, you know, you just keep hammering white guilt and you get lots of resources, right? So July 19th, 1960, prominent NDP officials, including Leopold Takawira, were arrested under the Unlawful Organizations Act. The arrest prompted a massive protest of tens of thousands of people, including Robert Mugabe, who was asked to give a speech. And, uh, yeah, if um, if you advocate for the overthrowing of a government, uh, that's generally illegal in, in most places in the world. So uh, that's why um, you, you can't form organizations dedicated to overthrowing the government in a particular country. That's common everywhere, right? The arrest of Leopold Takawira and the government's crackdown on dissent fermented Mugabe's drive to become engaged politically with him resigning from his Ghana teaching position to becoming a full-time activist. In October 1960, Mugabe was elected public secretary at the inaugural NDP Congress, but soon he would seek even greater power. In December 1961, Robert Mugabe spoke at a National Democratic Party meeting where he demanded self-sacrifice, calling for the crowd to remove their shoes and socks, claiming they were a sign of European civilization. He said, Europeans must realize that unless the the legitimate demands of African nationalism are recognized, then racial conflict is inevitable. Today you have removed your shoes. Tomorrow you may be called upon to destroy them altogether or to perform other acts of self-denial. And an interesting point here, right? So the blacks are a majority in this country, and the blacks wish it to be a black nationalist country. And this is hugely praised, of course, a very positive thing, and it's wonderful, and they want self-determination, and so on. Now, whites in Western countries are still, for the most part, a majority, yet white nationalism is considered to be the greatest evil on the planet. Largely imaginary evil, but if these guys want... Uh, to to maintain control of the political system because they're the majority and they're blacks, it's great. If you want to maintain control of the political system and you're white in a white country, that's terrible, right? It's just one of these bait and switches that happens uh, where um, uh, well, it's racist. It's racist against whites, it's clearly, right? So he said, if European-owned industries are used to buy guns which are aimed against us, we must withdraw our labor and our custom and destroy those industries, right? So destroy those industries. Uh, that sounds like terrorism to me. That sounds like calls for arson and violence and destruction and and all of that kind of stuff. So, uh. six days after Mugabe's speech, the government banned the NDP, prompting the black nationalists to reform the organization under a different name, the Zimbabwe African People's Union, or ZAPU. Just remember ZAPU, it's going to be showing up. Violence increased from the activists, with white farmers being systematically targeted, their crops burned, cattle slaughtered, and even schools and churches facing violent attacks. Now, just by the by, this is not just a black on white thing, but it's mostly a Marxist on market thing, right? The the whole destruction of South Africa, the whole destruction of of Zimbabwe and so on, it's large, I mean, they use racial division, but it's largely Marxism versus the free market. And the reason I say that is that uh, millions of blacks were employed on white farms. And so when you destroy the farm, a lot of blacks get 
thrown out of work. And uh, it's not like it's easy for them to find work. And more recently, Zimbabwe was experiencing an unemployment rate of 95%. So it's not like this is to the benefit of blacks and to the disadvantage of whites. It certainly is to the disadvantage of whites, but huge numbers of blacks suffered enormously. There's no welfare state back then, right? So you get, they burn down the farm, they destroy the farm, they kill the farmers, and you're out of a job, and you're not getting paid. And what are you going to do, right? This is very, very important. In September 1962, nine months after its creation, Zappu was also banned, with Mugabe being arrested and given a three-month term restricting his movement to his home area to restrain his revolutionary activities. Again, that's kind of mild. That's kind of mild. See, here's the question. It's interesting. And again, it's, it's double standard. It's fascinating to me. So in most Western countries, I think all Western countries really, except for the United States, because of course it has the First Amendment, there's a concept of hate speech, which is if you say something that is offensive to others or might cause social unrest, or I don't even know what the legal standard is. It just seems to be if, I don't know. I, let's talk about that another time. But there's this concept of hate speech, that if you say things that are potentially destructive or harmful or offensive or upsetting to people and so on, then you get thrown in jail. You get thrown in jail. So if you're for that, then you got to be against what Mugabe was saying, right? Because he was talking about destroying industries and, and calling for violence, and, and violence was actually occurring as the result of his speech. You know, I end up splashed across above the fold. Three pictures of me of the Sunday New York Times because I'm perceived to have radicalized someone I never actually met and said radicalization, as I've mentioned before, included or was defined by him going from being unemployed to employed and also going from being single and wanting a girlfriend to actually having a girlfriend. Uh, a Christian girlfriend, maybe that's what bothered the owners of the New York Times so much. I don't know. But so was he radicalizing people? Well, sure. He's calling for the destruction of industries and the activists, uh, um, crops burned, cattle slaughtered, schools and churches facing violent attacks. So if you say, well, direct calls to violence, you shouldn't arrest anyone to do with that, then you have to be even more against hate speech laws, which are used against very mild statements often of statistical facts. So again, just this double standard. I mean, what are they going to do? They're surrounded by Marxists. Marxists have come into the society and they're willing to do anything to gain power. And this is not me saying that. That's Marxists, right? Everything that serves the revolution is good. Everything which impedes the revolution is bad. The revolution is violent. And so what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, you, what they did was try and rest. Now, the problem, of course, as well, is that the media being so left-leaning and the media in general being enormously anti-white and anti-Christian, well, of course, the media portrays all conflicts between blacks and whites as white racism and black oppression, or blacks being oppressed. So it's really, really tough. You know, you've got a whole international press that's hovering around, ready to pounce on you and, and call you every terrible name in the book if you, I don't know, try to oppose the Marxism that it seems the media wishes to metastasize and destroy market economies around the world. So, with the banning of three different black nationalist political parties, it wasn't the black nationalism in particular, it was the Marxism calls to violence and outright violence that resulted from it, that was really the issue. Mugabe then changed focus from politics to outright militarization. The question was, he said, should we continue as before with a political struggle, campaigning and demonstrations, or were we now going to embark on a program that would lead to an armed struggle, the training of our people, 
and we agreed that we had to train people, right? So outright guerrilla warfare and terrorism and violence and so on, right? So land disadvantages and significant income inequality between whites and blacks led to the emergence of two rival black nationalist organizations. The Zimbabwe African People's Union, ZAPU, was aligned with Joshua Nkomo and funded by the Soviet Union. See, that's another aspect, too, that the money is pouring in from the Soviet Union. Whereas the Zimbabwe African National Union, or ZANU, was aligned with Mugabe and received support from the People's Republic of China. That's a desperate, desperate struggle. And uh, tragically, they lost, and, and just about everyone lost in this situation. While both groups violently opposed the Rhodesian government, violent conflict between each other was even more frequent as they attempted to assert themselves and establish power. So it's back to the pattern even of the late 19th, early 20th century, which is the whites are trying to do their thing, the blacks oppose them, and the blacks are fighting with each other and then fighting with the whites. Now, this is not to whitewash the whites. There's a lot of oppression. I get all of that, right? But that we know about. I'm trying to sow the other side. The overall militarization of the liberation struggle had disastrous consequences for the general population. Guerrilla war with its dangerous collateral quickly became commonplace. And listen, I mean, I don't suggest that you do it, but if you ever really want to horrify yourself, you can just look up necklacing in uh, South Africa and Mandela's, I think ex-wife at the time was heavily involved in that. Uh, Necklacing is when you dislike someone. So what you do is you put a tire around their neck and you fill the inside of the tire with gasoline and you light it on fire. In December 1963, Mugabe was arrested for making subversive statements, and by March 64, he was sentenced to 21 months in prison, but ultimately ended up serving 11 years. And uh, I'm not sure exactly why. I assume it's similar to my understanding of why Nelson Mandela spent so long in prison because he refused to denounce violence and say, let's work peacefully. While Mugabe was in prison, violence escalated, throwing Rhodesia into a civil war. This war, known as the Rhodesian Bush War, lasted from 1964 to 1979. And again, it's tragically easy for communists to come in and light the tin box of class and race resentment and gender resentment and just destabilize and and turn to a feral level of violence in an entire society. In 74, Robert Mugabe was released from prison, but it took him until August 1977 to be named Zimbabwe African National Union president and to gain full control over its vast guerrilla army. So he referred to white Rhodesians as blood-sucking exploiters, sadistic killers, and hardcore racists. Mugabe not only wanted to achieve an end to white rule, but an elimination of the existing capitalist society and the establishment of a one-party Marxist state, well, otherwise known as just a Marxist state. Robert Mugabe said in 1976, Our votes must go together with our guns. After all, any vote we shall have shall have been the product of the gun. The gun which produces the vote should remain its security officer, its guarantor. The people's votes and the people's guns are always inseparable twins in Zimbabwe. None of the white exploiters will be allowed to keep an acre of their land. Land reform. Mass murder. Well, and and remember, of course, ZANU, his political party, was backed by China, communist China. And, And Chairman Mao said political power grows out the barrel of a gun. So, yeah. Yeah, votes equal guns, of course, unless you're white. In 1978, Robert Mugabe called Vladimir Lenin, quote, 
the brain and hero behind the application of Marxist-Leninist principles. Now, that's actually fascinating. You know, it's terrible. I mean, Vladimir Lenin was a psychotic mass murderer, of course, uh, and uh, was responsible for the slaughter and starvation of millions of people. So praising him is the mark of a very squalid and, and corrupted and sociopathic human soul, conscienceless human being. Interestingly enough, uh, Yoda, I inspire a, um, <laughs> Albert Einstein, also praised Vladimir Lenin uh, as a, a, great, a great man. Albert Einstein. Yeah. Can't think of why. Anyway, Robert Mugabe frequently also spoke positively of Joseph Stalin. Mugabe claimed Fidel Castro was a valiant fighter, and often Mugabe attacked the white population. He said, let us hammer the white man to defeat. Let us blow up his citadel. Let us give him no time to rest. Let us chase him in every corner. Let us rid her home of the settler vermin. Don't think he should have spent any time in jail? Try saying that about, I don't know, Jewish people or whoever, right? And, and see, see how well you do, right? During the transition of Rhodesia into Zimbabwe, British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher called a peace conference involving all the nationalist leaders, including the violence-advocating Patriotic Front, Zapu-Zanu, led by Robert Mugabe and the aforementioned Joshua Nkomo. Mugabe wasn't interested in attending, of course, preferring to continue the guerrilla war. Mozambique President Samora Makel and Zambia President Kenneth Kaunda were both originally supportive of Mugabe's guerrilla war, but threatened to withdraw support if he refused to attend the peace negotiations. Robert Mugabe, 1979. We thought they were selling out. The frontline state said we had to negotiate, we had to go to this conference. There we were. We thought we were on top of the situation back home. We were moving forward all the time, and why should we be denied the ultimate joy of having militarily overthrown the regime here? We felt that would give us a better position. We could then dictate terms. So, just wants to slaughter the existing whites. Now, certainly the white government. The Lancaster House Agreement was signed on December 21, 1979, declaring a ceasefire in the Rhodesian Bush War and and contained an outline of the new independence constitution and the holding of a new election or new elections under British supervision. Under the independence constitution, 20% of the country's parliamentary seats would be reserved for whites, and majority rule was established. Zimbabwe was born, and the reason it was called Lancaster House, uh, it it took place in England. The Lancaster House Agreement included several restrictions on the land issue, one of which being that land currently owned by white farmers was protected from expropriation for 10 years. You know, it's good to kick this thing down the road a little bit, right? That, that way people don't panic in the moment. Robert Mugabe later commented on this restriction. We had to compromise on certain fundamental principles, but only because there was a chance in the future to amend the position. We had got the main concession of the creation of democracy, there would be democratic elections in the country, and if a government was going to be yielded up by those elections based on majority rule, then that government would, in due course, bring about the necessary changes. So we didn't worry very much, but it hurt us. We did not like it. It's just amazing to me, right? So again, the Marxists, uh, no ethics, no morals, uh, Saul Alinsky-style rules for radicals, anything to further the revolution, lie, cheese, steal, rape, murder, doesn't matter. And it's like, but they signed a treaty! So... I'm sure that's going to be fine. It's like, if only we would just listen to what people told us. If only we would just listen.
Following the Lancaster House agreement, Mozambique President Samora Macal warned the Sanu Central Committee, quote, Don't play make-believe Marxist games when you get home. You will face ruin if you force the whites there into precipitate flight. With the first Zimbabwe election upcoming, Mugabe stripped all anti-white rhetoric and references to Marxism from his political manifesto. Right, so this is really, really important. I mean, this is, again, anything for the revolution, everything for the revolution, no moral restrictions on what you can do to gain power. So he said, ZANU wishes to give the fullest assurance to the white community, the Asian and colored mixed race communities that a ZANU government can never in principle or in social or government practice discriminate against them. Racism, whether practiced by whites or blacks, is anathema to the humanitarian philosophy of ZANU. It is as primitive a dogma as tribalism or regionalism. Zimbabwe cannot just be a country of blacks. It is and should remain a country. All of us together. Despite the peace agreement, Mugabe violated it by maintaining thousands of guerrilla soldiers for use in intimidating potential voters to guarantee his future political power. You know, it's chilling how much dictators love democracy. Shocking. Zapu leader Joshua Nkomo confirmed Mugabe's strategy. Quote, The word intimidation is mild. People are being terrorized. It is terror. There is fear in people's eyes. In February 1980, Zimbabwe held its first election following the Lancaster Agreement, with the violence-prone ZANU gaining 63% of the national vote, winning 57 of 100 seats. Joshua Nkomo's Zapu also took 20 seats and it's ZANU leader Robert Mugabe becoming modern Zimbabwe's first prime minister. And, and Mugabe's guerrillas also prevented opposition parties like ZAPU from campaigning. Right? In an election based around removing white leadership and installing majority rule, ethnic background played a massive role in the outcome. Well, of course, right? I mean, you get a multi-ethnic society, elections just become an ethnic headcount, right? I mean, that's just the way... Uh, things work. It's never been any different. Maybe it will be different one day. I mean, these multi-ethnic societies, I don't know, like if we actually had talked about facts and, and dealt with, with issues around, around group differences, maybe we could have a civilized discussion. But of course, the people who want to just sow resentment and, and race hatred and cause division and set group against group, I mean, that's just a factor you have to take into account when you're looking at these kinds of societies. Mugabe was from the Shona group, which made up approximately 70% of the country's population, while his leading rival, Joshua Nkomo, was in Debeli, which represented under 20% of the population, right? So again, you know, I mean, there's a, it's just the way it works, right? So the Shonas vote for the Shona guy, and the Ndebele vote for the Ndebele guy, and that's why you have Ilhan Omar in power, right? I mean, it's just the way it works. Prime Minister Robert Mugabe granted the opposition leader, Joshua Nkomo, a position as Home Affairs Minister, mostly managing police responsibilities, but it was a textbook case of keep your friends close and your enemies closer. The result of the election struck panic throughout the white community, which feared an anti-white Marxist one-party state advocating leader. But Mugabe turned on the charm, right? I mean, sociopaths can be enormously charming. He turned on the charm in his post-election presentation and temporarily quelled concerns, and he said... There is no intention on our part to use our majority to victimize the minority. We will ensure there is a place for everyone in our country. We want to ensure a sense of security for both the winners and the losers. I urge you, whether black or white, to join me in a new pledge to forget our grim past, 
forgive others and forget, join hands in a new amity, and together as Zimbabweans trample upon racism. Let us deepen our sense of belonging and engender a common interest that knows no race, color, or creed. And I'm sure the doves were released, and the confetti cannons were fired, and the music swelled, and the heart got even darker. I mean, he's no interest in actually following up on this. It's just, you know, you say nice doggy while you cast her out for a stick, right? Mugabe, April 17, 1980. Quote, The wrongs of the past must now stand forgiven and forgotten. If ever we look to the past, let us do so for the lesson the past has taught us, namely that oppression and racism are inequalities that must never find scope in our political and social system. It could never be a correct justification that because the whites oppressed us yesterday, when they had power, the blacks must oppress them today because they have power. And evil remains an evil whether practiced by white against black or black against white. You know, some people have a deep knowledge of morality because they want to be moral, and some people have a deep knowledge of morality because they want to fool people who want to be moral, right? Like some people will study the human anatomy because they want to be doctors and healers, and some people will study the human anatomy and know it very well because they want to be torturers who know where the greatest pain points are. So, With peace having been established, the Mugabe-Zanu loyal Nanla army of approximately 40,000, mostly shown as speaking trained guerrilla fighters, needed to integrate with the Nkomu-Zapu loyal Zipper army of approximately 20,000, mostly Sindebele-speaking men trained in traditional combat with the traditional Rhodesian army. Because diversity is always a strange... <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. The United Kingdom provided military assistance to integrate both black nationalist guerrilla forces into the Rhodesian army, but the results were disastrous and frequent tribalistic skirmishes became commonplace. ZANU party member and close Mugabe associate Edgar Tukeri said, Ngomo and his guerrillas are germs in the country's wounds and they will have to be cleaned up with iodine. The patient will have to scream a bit. You should see him in a crown. Minister of Finance and ZANU party member Enos Nkala in July 1980 said, As from today, ZAPU has become the enemy of ZANU-PF. The time has come for ZANU-PF to flex its muscles. Our supporters must now form vigilante committees for those who want to challenge us. There must be a general mobilization of our supporters. Organize yourselves into small groups in readiness to challenge ZAPU on its home ground. If it means a few blows, we shall deliver them. PF is a patriotic front. Following these statements, the armies representing the two black nationalist political parties regularly engaged in violent opposition. Let's talk about the open anti-white attacks in July 1980. One of Mugabe's closest friends and new government minister, Edgar Tukeri, verbally attacked the predominantly white Anglican church, calling it, quote, an instrument of oppression. And this kind of horrified the white citizenry, right? So remember, Marxism has as its greatest hatred Christianity because Christianity stands between Marxism and its power of a one-party dictatorial state. So it's not particularly shocking that I assume this guy was a Marxist, certainly in a Marxist government, um, attacked the Christians. That's the way it goes. I mean, the same thing happened uh, in, in Russia uh, as well. The following month, Takeri led an attack on a white farmhouse where a 68-year-old white farmer was murdered. Hmm. Just what you want on the resume of a government minister and close personal friend of the prime minister. While on trial, Takeri admitted 
to leading the attack and claimed it was done under the orders of Mugabe, claiming immunity under various government wartime provisions. Takeri was acquitted and the post-independence goodwill soon evaporated, right? Did not take long to go from rhetoric to facts, did it? Statues of British South Africa company Cecil Rhodes were removed, and many towns and roads were renamed to reflect the new African leadership. I mean, this is like, we can't look to the past, but we're sure going to dig up all the statues. We have to let go of resentment. Now go kill that white guy. In October 1980, Mugabe signed a secret agreement with the North Korean government to train a partisan army loyal to his own government. Robert Mugabe said they, the 5th Brigade they were called, they were trained by North Koreans because we wanted one arm of the army to have a political orientation, which stems from our philosophy as ZANU-PF. In January 1981, Mugabe reshuffled his cabinet and demoted ZAPU leader Joshua Nkomo from handling police responsibilities and gave him a non-essential post managing various public services. ZAPU leader Joshua Nkomo said, the whole thing is a complete violation of our understanding that ZAPU and ZANU-PF should share in managing security. Mugabe made the move without consultation or negotiation. I object to this. All right, how does that help? Mugabe's first land reform plan came at a cost of 60 million U.S. dollars, half to be funded by Britain. Ah, colonialism. Such a terrible idea. How do we reform the world? Well, let's go out and share our institutions with the world. That didn't work. Let's invite the world to come and share in our institutions. It won't work any better. So Mugabe's goal was to resettle 18,000 families over three years on 2.5 million acres of former white land. Prime Minister Mugabe said in 81, we can never have peace in the country unless the peasant population is satisfied in relation to the land issue. Well, they weren't that unhappy before until you kept telling everyone that they were being exploited. U.S. official for African Affairs Frank Wisner in 81 said, The success of Zimbabwe's experiment with nationhood sends a clear message to the region and the world about the prospects of lasting negotiated settlements in southern Africa and of reconciliation among the region's strife-torn people. Yeah, just a little bit early to be declaring massive success there, Frank. Just a little bit. Premature, I might say. Now, Mugabe, of course, was still fiercely dedicated to achieving a one-party Marxist state, and he asked his constituents to be patient regarding his promised changes. He said, We shall proceed to bring about changes, but changes in a realistic manner. We recognize that the economic structure of this country is based on capitalism, and that whatever ideas we have, we must build on that. Modifications can only take place in a gradual way. By the way, just to jump back to Frank Wisner for a second, Frank Wisner's father, who was also named Frank Wisner, hated the Soviet Union, but completely failed to detect the Soviets among his associates. Uh, Frank had a bit of a questionable track record as an ambassador, and uh, he also had some involvement in the post-war plans for Iraq. Not, not really the subject of this presentation, but I think it's fair to say the U.S. did not exactly send their best. Stunning Kruger, right? Everything's obvious and clear when you don't understand the complexities. In December 1981, ZANU-PF headquarters in central Salisbury was bombed, killing seven people and injuring 124 bystanders, many of whom were Christmas shopping on the street outside. Mugabe and his entire central committee were scheduled for a meeting at the time of the bombing, but had been delayed. Mugabe blamed the South African government and Zimbabwean whites, who still sought to overthrow him. 
Well, when you've got one of your ministers murdering a white guy, yeah, I can see why they might have some concerns about your continued rule. Now, of course, South Africa wanted to avoid Rhodesia or Zimbabwe falling to communism, right? They backed Ian Smith's efforts during the Rhodesian Bush War. They threw tons of money at Mugabe's political opponents in the 80 elections, which, of course, Mugabe and, and the other guy were getting money from Russia and China. They didn't want a radical Marxist neighbor, right? Because Marxism metastasizes, it attempts to spread. It's international socialism, right? So two things would have happened, what were, were happening with Mugabe in power was that he would then immediately try to um, destroy the capitalist system in South Africa, which of course they have pretty much done. And because with the destruction of, of the white farmers, the black workers would, would be out of work, and there wouldn't be a whole bunch of new farmers to come and, and hire them. They would just flee south to South Africa, which would create destabilization in South Africa. So, yeah, it was uh, yeah, this was a huge issue for South Africa. Prime Minister Mugabe, December 81, he said, What baffles my government is that reactionary and counter-revolutionary elements because of their treason and crimes against humanity in Zimbabwe, we could have put before the firing squad, but for which we decided to forgive. They hardly repented. They have, in practice, rejected reconciliation and are acting in collusion with South Africa to harm our racial relations, to destroy our unity, to sabotage our economy, and to overthrow the popularity, popularly elected government I lead. Again, this is another standard thing that happens, which is um, when you destroy the market, you destroy the price mechanism. When you destroy the price mechanism, you destroy any capacity for our scarce goods and resources to be used efficiently. Price is this massive free signal signaling supply and demand. And so when you take over the economy and you start central planning and price controls and price fixing and all that, you destroy efficiency, you kill the economy. So then what do you do? Um, you, you can't give up your entire ideology, at least people rarely do. So you simply blame foreigners, right? They did, again, they did this all over the place. You, you, you blame, blame counter-revolutionaries and sabotage and reactionaries, and then you just start shooting people, right? Well, not that you haven't started shooting people, but you shoot even more people. He said, in these circumstances where those with a criminal record continue to not only display it as a heroic achievement, but also add to it by connecting fresh crimes, my government is bound to revise its policy of national reconciliation and take definite steps to mete out harsh punishment to this clan of unrepentant and criminal savages. July 82, the South African government recruited several white Zimbabwean saboteurs who destroyed 13 aircraft at Thornhill, Zimbabwe's main Air Force Base. Again, why did they do that? Because South Africa was, maybe they'd been threatened. Maybe, I don't know, right? I don't know. And we probably will never know. But um, Marxist neighbors are very, very dangerous. Uh, they don't just stay in their own borders. People flee their borders and they will attempt to subvert your country as well. In searching for the culprits of this uh, destruction of the aircraft, six white Air Force officers were arrested. They were denied access to lawyers, held without outside communication, and tortured until they confessed, quote, involvement in the sabotage operation. The Air Force officers were acquitted at trial by a black judge as their coerced confessions were, only evidence as to their, were the only evidence as to their guilt. Mugabe had the officers immediately rearrested following the trial, prompting an international outcry. It's really, really important. We, we talked about this with um, the other black leaders. There were really good blacks who wanted to maintain the rule of law and, and, and political freedoms and um, economic freedoms and so on. And they were appalled. And here this black judge is pushing back against this totalitarian kangaroo court and so on. So that's, uh, that's 
I mean, it's important to remember, it, it, it's Marxism against freedom. It's not specifically black against white. Mugabe said, unfortunately, our interrogators used irregular methods. We admit that they were irregular. They did use torture. Why is there so much concern about these men? Is it because they are white, because they are Mrs. Thatcher's kith and kin? The law of evidence and the criminal procedure we have inherited is a stupid ass. It's one of those principles born out of the stupidity of some of the procedures of colonial times. Yeah, so he's, he approves of torture and he's contemptuous of any reasonable legal standards. While the officers were eventually released, the damage was done. Within three years, half of Zimbabwe's white population had left the country with only 100,000 remaining. And according to some sources, the remaining 100,000 whites had, quote, retreated into their own world of clubs, sporting activities, and comfortable living. And this is sort of the gated communities, right, where you just retreat into behind your walls and you, you hire security and so on. And... Um, you, know, you, you you cross your fingers and wait in general for the inevitable. In February 1982, Mugabe removed opposition leader Joshua Nkomo from government office and seized all Zapu party business and property, financially destroying many long-standing Zapu members. Mugabe said, The only way to deal effectively with a snake is to strike and destroy its head. How else can I describe a man who we supposed was our friend and whom we invited to be part of our government when we could have formed a ZANU-PF government without him? Two former Zipra leaders were arrested and tried for treason, and the illegal possession of weapons. Although acquitted in 83, they were immediately re-detained, right? So, uh, yeah, you could just try people over, and uh, no double jeopardy, right? Nkomo denied Mugabe's accusations. The arms were not the real issue. This was the trigger point of a political move against me for pushing ahead the one-party state and for removing certain obstacles. In 82, Mugabe announced another ambitious plan to resettle 162,000 black families amounting to approximately 1 million total people over the next three years. Now, this shuffling people around is really, um, you know, this is a little bit more voluntary. It was certainly more forced in other areas, but the collectivization of the farms under both uh, Mao and and Stalin uh, was incredibly destructive, of course. And and you know the whole sort of de-urbanization program under the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia where they just forced everyone in the cities out uh, at, at gunpoint to go work on the farms. I mean, it's just moving people around like you're just chess pieces. In January 83, Mugabe deployed the North Korea-trained 5th Brigade in Matabeleland to, quote, deal with dissenters. Reports suggest that throughout Matabalelaland, there were only approximately 400 total dissenters, but Mugabe waged a campaign of violence and massacres which slaughtered over 6,000 within six weeks. Now, another fundamental aspect of totalitarianism, particularly Marxism, is you get citizenry implicated in uh, murders. So uh, this is particularly true in, in China. Under Mao, you rouse the villagers against the wealthy and those who have, you know, three pennies more than they do, and they end up torturing and killing them. And then they're kind of committed to the new regime. Because if the new regime fails, they might be implicated or could be tried for murder. So again, you, you, you get people into the criminal gang by getting them to commit crimes, which means that the only protection they gain in the future is from that criminal gang. So this was probably more state on individuals, but it happened a lot. Individuals on individuals. Using this 5th Brigade, Mugabe waged systematic war against his political opponents, occupying cities, imposing strict curfews, banning transportation, and blocking supplies. 
far outstripping horror seen during the Rhodesian War. A Catholic delegation described wanton killings, woundings, beatings, burnings and rapings of innocent people who are neither dissidents nor collaborators, all while the state-controlled broadcast media hid the atrocities. By the way, hiding these atrocities was not just in the Zimbabwe media. Mugabe said, We have to deal with this problem quite ruthlessly. Don't cry if your relatives get killed in the process. Where men and women provide food for the dissidents, when we get there, we eradicate them. We do not differentiate who we fight because we can't tell who is a dissident and who is not. No, it's just a sociopathic slaughter fest. It's a, a kid with a magnifying glass, a hot sun, and an ant. In 1984, Mugabe targeted the Matabaleland South population of 400,000, which had an estimated 200 dissidents, deploying 15,000 troops, including the infamous 5th Brigade. The population was heavily dependent on external food delivery, and Mugabe's forces halted all deliveries to the area, intentionally provoking a starvation crisis. This, again, is a classic Marxist move. There is a famous general under Mao who starved a city and slaughtered 160,000 people for resistance. That's a standard uh, mood move. An infamous quote from an anonymous 5th Brigade soldier described the campaign. First, you will eat your chickens, then your goats, then your cattle, then your donkeys. Then you will eat your children. And finally, you will eat the dissidents. You see, the dominoes that are set in effect, when you allow someone, when you allow someone to provoke the devil within you, to provoke the satanic within you into resentment and rage and hatred for somebody being better off or more wealthy than you are, even though they may have earned it, and they may have come by it unjustly, don't get me wrong, but maybe they earned it, maybe they worked harder, maybe they're just smarter. You know, that I'm, I'm not going to be upstage uh, uh, with a microphone leading a rock band anytime. I don't sing well enough, right? So the people who do it, I mean, I can resent them if I want, but they just have better voices. I mean, what's the point of getting so mad? Well, what happens is, of course, you let people provoke you into hatred, and they use that hatred to control and ultimately destroy you. Well, the wages of sin is death, and envy is one of the great deadly sins. Envy and rage. Former Prime Minister of Rhodesia Ian Smith also soon faced the brunt of Mugabe's retribution. After warning of Mugabe's steering of Zimbabwe into one-party Marxist rule internationally, Smith returned home and was repeatedly harassed and his house ransacked on multiple occasions. So this guy went on a tour saying, listen, Mugabe is a Marxist, uh, he's a dictator, uh, this is going to be terrible. Did you ever hear about this? No. Why? Because the mainstream media covered it all up. Why? because they're Marxist sympathetic in general. The why for that is a topic for another time. In the 85 parliamentary election, Smith's party, the Conservative Alliance of Zimbabwe, ran 15 out of 20 available white seats, further enraging Mugabe. Mugabe said in 85, The voting has shown that they have not repented in any way. They still cling to the past support. The very man who created a series of horrors against the people of Zimbabwe. We wish to make it very clear that it is going to be very hard for the racists of this country. Right, so the word racism is sometimes a precursor to 
genocide. I mean, this is dehumanizing and uh, usually false. He said, those whites who have not accepted the reality of a political order in which the Africans set the pace will have to leave the country. We are working with those whites who want to work with us, but the rest will have to find a new home. We will kill those snakes among us. We will smash them completely. Yeah. So apparently, see, if you're black, apparently love it or leave it is fine. If you're a black Marxist dictator, that's totally fine. If you're a white person who says it, oh, right. Mugabe's dissident crackdown also failed to have the desired effect at the ballot box in Matabela land as Zapu won 15 of 15 available seats in the 85 parliamentary elections. See, Marxist tribalism is good, you see, but, but all other tribalism is evil. Despite the electoral success, the systematic decimation of Zapu members and sympathetic populations continued. Zapu leader Joshua Nkomo said, We accused and condemned the previous white minority government for creating a police state, and yet we exceed them when we create a military state. We accused former colonizers who used detention without trial as well as torture and yet do exactly what they did, if not worse. We accused whites of discrimination on grounds of color and yet we have discriminated on political and ethnic grounds. On on September 21st, 87, Zimbabwe amended its constitution to remove the stipulated white parliamentary seats, which amounted to 20 seats or 20% of the parliament. Now, just by the way, Joshua Nkomo, right? So he sounds like the reasonable guy who's pushing back against this. But remember, he he led the other violent faction uh, earlier on, and he's upset because he didn't gain the power that he wanted, which Mugabe did. And, of course, Nkomo would have been corrupted by power, as, as everyone is. So the 20 vacated seats were filled by an ele- electoral college vote, with all 20 going to Mugabe's ZANU party. Mugabe also became President Robert Mugabe as the previously ceremonial presidential position was merged with the prime ministership to give it executive power. On December 27, 1987, Nkomo moved to end the violence by capitulating to Mugabe and signing a unity accord merging ZAPU and ZANU-PF into a single party maintaining the ZANU-PF branding. The unity agreement stipulated taking steps to end the remaining violence and a commitment to, quote, establish a socialist society in Zimbabwe, on the guidance of Marxist-Leninist principles. And yet, he was almost never referred to as a Marxist in any of his obituaries. Mugabe was successful in eliminating an opposition party, killing over 10,000 of his own citizens and terrorizing hundreds of thousands more to accomplish the task. When faced with shortages or internal problems brought about by his violent campaigns, destructive policies, or acts of God, Robert Mugabe never failed to accuse a politically convenient scapegoat. During a maize meal shortage, an official commission was formed to determine if milling companies were hoarding maize to drive up prices, but when the commission exonerated the millers, Mugabe simply refused to believe it. Quote, I will never believe the story that the shortage was caused by so many people now buying media, uh, mealy meal or that some of the mealy meal was going to Botswana or Mozambique. That is a lie. I know these millers, their intention is to suck the wealth of the country and destroy the government. Those whites we defeated are still in control. They own the mines, the factories, commerce. They are the bosses in our country. And look, I mean, this obviously is a horribly nasty guy as a whole. But I, I do wonder, like, if the well-established differences between ethnicities could have been discussed 
and it's really a topic that the the communists hate the most, right? Because it's a competing and and true theory. He was driven kind of crazy by not having an explanation other than exploitation for group differences in a meritocracy. He was driven kind of mad, and a lot of people are. They think, why, why, why are East Asians wealthier than whites? Why are Jews wealthier than East Asians? Why are East Asians wealthier than Hispanics? Why are Hispanics wealthier than blacks? We know the answers to all of this, but, but it drives people crazy trying to figure this out. And the only thing they can think of is racism, exploitation, and the, the, the destruction that comes out of not being able to talk about basic facts is, well, rivers of blood. After 10 years of independence, only 52,000 families, or 416,000 people, have been resettled on 6.5 million acres of former white land. These numbers are even less impressive when you take into account that astronomical population growth added an additional 40,000 black families each year and that resettled land was heavily underutilized. The new landowners weren't as, as advertised and simply reflected Mugabe's political supporters, government ministers, senior civil servants, law enforcement bigwigs, defense officials, and general managers, right? So it's the cronyism, right? You, you just give the land to the cronies, right? In nine, which is the opposite of meritocracy, right? It's just it's what uh, Ayn Rand used to call the aristocracy of pull, rather than the aristocracy of merit. In 1990, with the 10-year restriction period ending and facing re-election, Mugabe was ready to undertake more serious land reforms and further entrench his political power in the inevitably dictatorial fashion. He increased the number of seats in Parliament from 100 to 150, with only 120 being decided via democratic election. 20 would be direct Mugabe appointments, and another 10 would be appointed by the Mugabe-controlled Council of Chiefs. This move prevented ZANU-PF opposition from forming a government unless they obtained 76 seats, while ZANU-PF only needed 46 seats, and this, of course, cemented Mugabe's control. Mugabe said, If whites want to rear their racist head by collaborating with opposing African leadership political party Zoom, we will chop that head off. We are saddened that there are others who want to divide us. But people must not listen to small, petty little ants we can crush. In addition to completely controlling the state-run media, Mugabe's NUPF party was the only one to receive direct state funding and ran television advertisements showing fatal car crashes and stating, This is one way to die. Another is to vote Zoom. Don't commit suicide. Vote ZANU-PF and live. It's pretty direct, I would say. (laughs) Kind of truth in advertising there. On March 24, 1990, popular opposition parliamentary candidate Robert Kombayi was attacked and critically shot six times by ZANU-PF members and agents from Zimbabwe's Central Intelligence Organization. On March 28, 1990, Mugabe unsurprisingly won a convincing victory with 80% of the vote in the presidential race in ZANU-PF, taking 116 of 119 available parliamentary seats. Yeah, it's the old saying. I think it was Stalin. It doesn't matter who votes. It matter who counts the votes. Kumbayi failed to win his parliamentary seat and was crippled for life. A senior CIO officer and a ZANU-PF youth leader were convicted of attempted murder, but Mugabe granted them and others associated with election violence on his behalf a presidential pardon. Former Chief Justice Enoch Dumbuchina said, We have a president who does not believe in the rule of law and who disregards the tendency upon which the rule of law is built. 
to ordinary people, it's more frightening because it means the president has given a license to members of ZANU, PF, and CIO to kill those who are not members of their party in full knowledge that the president will pardon them. Boy, can you imagine? Can you imagine, I mean, even in America, being a senior government official or head of, a, say, the FBI or and just being able to commit serious crimes and get away with it? <laughs> Boy, that sure would be an indication of dictatorship. With the release of Nelson Mandela in South Africa, international focus uh, returned to Africa and ZANU-PF members greatly desired to increase Zimbabwe's perception among international donors. Mugabe was convinced to remove all references in the Constitution to Marxism, Leninism, and scientific socialism, even though Mugabe insisted that, quote, socialism remains our sworn ideology. While still believing the need for land reforms, white farmers were horrified to discover plans to expropriate nearly 50% of their land while existing government-owned land remained undistributed. Without consulting his own agricultural advisers, Mugabe's parliament amended the constitution to allow the government to confiscate land, fix the price that would be paid, and block court appeals requesting fair compensation. <sighs> well, it's like uh, the, the, the pirate captain who he was arrested by a navy. And uh, the, the captain in the navy said, but you're just a dirty pirate. And he said, well, we're, we're the same. You just, you have the law behind you and I don't. I mean, we're, we're both the same. And yeah, this kind of theft, you know, just legalized theft. It remains theft, but you can just legalize it, right? Mugabe said in 1990, it makes absolute nonsense of our history as an African country that most of our arable and ranching land is still in the hands of our erstwhile colonizers while the majority of our peasant community still live like squatters in their God-given land. Mugabe's sister, Sabina Mugabe, said, The white colonialists took our land without paying for it. Why should we pay them exorbitant prices? Must we stay squatters on the land of our birth, give them the whites' bikes, and take back our land? Right, so you have, in general, right, the whites came and turned mostly dry and hard-to-farm land into very productive land, right? And, it, you know, again, I get it. It drives... It drives people crazy. How, how is it fair? How is it fair that in Africa, whites are owning most of the land? Like, I, I really, really understand it. And, and again, we have answers. But in general, we're attacked for talking about them. And, and the reason I do talk about these answers is because I know what happens if we don't. It's inevitable what happens if we don't. Zimbabwe's first black chief justice, Enoch Dumbachina, said, it flies in the face of all accepted norms of modern society and the rule of law. Again, trying to fight for rule of law. Minister of Agriculture, his name is actually Witness, Mangwendi, to the Commercial Farmers Union in January 1991. Quote, The land question is a time bomb which must be solved now. The time for energy-consuming debates on the desirability or otherwise of this program has run out. The only useful debate that the government is willing to entertain about the resettlement program is on the implementation modalities. You will have to trust us. Well, this is, right, the impatience of the tyrants, right? So anytime, the time to act is now, the time for debate is past, enough is enough. They're just trying to stimulate you into, well, the old act in haste, repent at leisure situation. The United States, United Kingdom, International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank all cautioned against the plan, right? This 
land expropriation, stealing the land, right? Warning that foreign aid packages would be withdrawn and outside investment into the country would dry up. Defiant Mugabe asserted that he would ignore legal judgments that interfered with land expropriation. I, Robert Mugabe, cannot be dragged to court by a settler. In 91, the IMF suggested a structural adjustment program to Mugabe, and he not only agreed but pledged to free market reforms. Many of the free market economic reforms were not conducted, but the move temporarily helped legitimize Zimbabwe's government bonds internationally. Again, I'm sure we can trust the guy who slaughters his own people and who has committed to lying to gain power. In 92, Mugabe proposed a Land Acquisition Act which allowed for the compulsory purchase of farms provided the property was derelict, owned by absentee landlords, was surrounded by communal areas, located on underutilized land, and or the owner had multiple farms. Originally, the Land Acquisition Act even included a provision blocking court challenges from the white farmers. Hmm, as they lost political power and became a minority, it's kind of what happened. Hopefully for the last time, I wonder, we'll see. And again, one of the reasons why he wanted all this land was so he could hand it out to his cronies, right? So so you get people to engage in murder and other criminal actions, and then they're wedded and bonded to the political party that has legitimized it. But also what you do, of course, is if you transfer a thousand acres to your buddy, then your buddy has a thousand acres worth of value to support your government. Because if your government falls... Maybe he doesn't get to keep that land, right? So the giving of gifts gifts is essential. Well, the giving of stolen gifts, of course, is essential to the maintenance of political power. At the last minute, the government removed the court challenge block from the Land Acquisition Act and provided the option to appeal the potential expropriation through the legal process. The eventual act was not something the Commercial Farmers Union fiercely opposed, as many white farmers were sympathetic to the topic of land reform. Quote, While many of these methods are not actually incorporated into the bill, if they are implemented along the lines described by the minister, the CFU will not be found wanting in cooperation with the government. The final Land Acquisition Act allowed for a lengthy several-year process where a farm would be listed for expropriation, the owner would be served with an expropriation order, and then the situation would go to court. If the court ruled against the owner, they would have 90 days to leave their property. In July 92, Mugabe designated 13 productive farms for acquisition, including two farms already belonging to black owners, right? So remember, it's not just black versus white. There's an aspect to that, but it's in general productive versus unproductive, successful versus less successful. And that's the, um, that's the real battle. Ultimately, seven of the 13 farms were undesignated, which highlighted the original designation as arbitrary. This occurred again in 93 with another 70 productive farms designated for expropriation, including a suspicious number that belonged to Mugabe's clear political opponents. Well, of course, right? Of course, right? Yeah, so, you know, it wasn't even written down, but the white farmers were like, yeah, yeah, we trust you. It's going to be fine. Mugabe, July 1993, said, We will not brook any decision by any court from acquiring any land. We will get land we want from anyone, be they black or white, and we will not be restricted to underutilized land. Mugabe, September 1993. If white settlers just took the land from us without paying for it, we can, in a similar way, just take it from them without paying for it or entertaining any ideas of legality and constitutionality. Perhaps our weakness has been the fact that we have tried to act morally and legally when they acted immorally and illegally. How can these countries who have stolen land from the Red Indians, the Aborigines, and the Eskimos dare to tell us what to do with our land? 
See, this is the funny thing, right? Taking land without compensation is immoral. So we're going to do it. It was immoral when the whites did it, so we're going to do it as blowback, right? So that just means there's no ethics, right? If you believe in a particular principle, then you withhold it even when you have power. That's... And of course, the whites did pay for the land. They either enclosed it, or they traded for it, or they paid cash for it. Yeah, I understand, right? So... In 1994, Queen Elizabeth II presented Robert Mugabe with the Honorary Knight Grand Cross in the civil division of the Most Honorable Order of Bath. This order of the British knighthood is described as a reward either for military service or for exemplary civilian merit. 94. 94 decades into his rule. Mugabe would later be stripped of this honor in 2008 when his human rights abuses could no longer be ignored. Where was the media? Where was the media? The corrupt nature of Mugabe's measures was highlighted in April 94, as an independent newspaper discovered that a farm expropriated against the owner's wishes had not even been used for resettlement and was instead assigned to the Minister of Education. Just steal. Once this scandal was uncovered, Minister of Agriculture Kumbirai Kangai told Parliament that the farm was part of a new tenant resettlement plan to, quote, facilitate a more balanced racial composition of the large-scale farming sector. But no further details about this plan were made available. Yeah, so just politically correct baffle gab to cover up rampant theft. An endless series of similar corruption discoveries plagued Zimbabwe's land expropriation plans, prompting the United Kingdom, who had already spent £44 million on resettlement since independence, to cut off future land reform funding in 1995. But still, he kept his knighthood for a long time. Immediately following the 95 election, Mugabe awarded government ministers and parliamentary officials a 133% pay increase, while also increasing the size of his cabinet from 29 to 42 ministers, defying the World Bank, which suggested only 15 ministers were needed for effective management. After further plundering the public purse for the benefits of his political cronies, Mugabe also slashed health spending by 43%, cut pay increases for rank-and-file state employees, and eliminated their annual bonuses. While only an estimated 80,000 whites still lived in Zimbabwe, they still dominated commercial agriculture, manufacturing, and the mining industry. And, you know, this, this, this is an IQ issue, right, on an average, right? So there are places where uh, East Asians, right, Japanese and China, Chinese in particular, go, and they have very high average IQ, so they tend to dominate particular industries. I mean, I, you told people tend to dominate basketball. Like, I don't know what to say. Good singers tend to dominate singing competitions. You know, like, it's just, I don't know what to say. It's just the way, you know, nature rolls the dice. And, and this is what kind of plays out. And we can either talk about these facts or we can destroy our societies in, in bottomless racial hatreds that solve nothing and destroy everything. With heavy unemployment, crumbling social services, high inflation, and an angry citizenry, Mugabe did what he knew best. He blamed white people for the economic challenges, claiming they wanted to perpetuate economic domination and called for the full indigenization of the economy, which means you're banning all whites. And of course, in South Africa, the same thing has happened. There are now quotas. You can't hire white people. And there are whites, um, uh, ghettos, squatter camps with hundreds of thousands of people with no future, a little running water, very little access to any kind of social services. It's brutal. It's brutal. Mugabe, 1996. It is sad to note 
that a majority of our industrialists are crooks. Some are using retrenchment as a cost reduction measure, thereby increasing their profit margins at the expense of the Zimbabweans. Our people still suffer economic disablement as a result of myriad old laws, business practice, and prejudices. Themselves a legacy of the colonial past that sought a wholesale disempowerment of the blacks. Needless to say, this situation is unacceptable and cannot be allowed to continue. In 1996, Mugabe won 92.7% of the vote in the presidential election, with a dismal turnout of only 31.7%. Without legitimate opposition candidates, most of the electorate simply stayed home. Showing a distinct lack of forethought, Mugabe even insulted critical foreign investors who opposed his anti-white rhetoric, suggesting they could take their money and fly away. Of course, many did. The death of popular Zimbabwe war veteran Mukoma Musa uncorked significant veteran discontent and prompted a statement from Brigadier Gibson Mashingaidzi in December 1996. Some people now have ten farms to their names and luxury yachts and have developed fat stomachs when ex-combatants like Comrade Musa lived in abject poverty. Is this the ZANU-PF I trusted with my life? Is this the same party which promised to care for us in our old age? To the majority of Zimbabweans, I say, our party, which I believe is still a great party, has abandoned us. Yeah. Corrupt government not caring for its veterans, using them up and discarding them. I remember uh, a hiking guide I once had was an ex-army guy, and uh, his knees were destroyed. He was in his 20s. His knees were destroyed. And he complained about this. It was heavy packs, endless marches. His knees had been destroyed. And they just gave him painkillers. And now he's got to suffer with that for the rest of his life. Just buy and burn, buy and burn. To make matters worse, payments from the War Victims' Compensation Fund were stopped only three months later as corrupt financial pilfering had left it empty, right? Because deferral of gratification is essential for the maintenance of civilization. The veterans took to the streets in July 97 and ransacked Mugabe's party headquarters demanding extensive financial compensation. War Veterans Association, August 97. In order to resolve this issue peacefully, we demand that 50% of all ex-combatants needing settlement be given land by December 1997. The rest by July 1998. Failure to meet these deadlines will force war veterans to move in and settle themselves on farms that have been identified for resettlement. They will occupy white man's land because the white man did not buy that land. Desperate to save himself politically, Mugabe promised the war veterans the demanded financial compensation, land for resettlement, free education, and free health care. The estimated cost of these concessions was approximately $4 billion that Zimbabwe simply didn't have, but Mugabe thought he would simply borrow the needed money, brushing off concerns. Have you ever heard of a country that collapsed because of borrowing? The payments had the effect of inflating the budget by 55% compared to the prior year. When Mugabe promised that war veterans would be paid by Christmas, the Zimbabwe dollar plunged in value and the World Bank suspended further lending to the country. Mugabe used the existing anger of the war veterans and channeled it towards the white farmers, promising 12 million acres of land expropriation. Mugabe in '97 said... We are going to take the land, and we are not going to pay a cent to any soul. The colonial exercise of robbery will be corrected once and for all. If Britain wants us to compensate its children, it must give us the money, or it does the compensation itself. On November 28, 97, Mugabe's government released a list of over 1,500 farms for expropriation, totaling 12 million acres and 45% of the total land held by commercial farmers. Refusing to pay for the land, Mugabe claimed the farmers would be compensated for improvements 
like buildings and roads. Mugabe said, we fought for the land, and now we're going to take it. With massive payments to the war veterans and threats of land expropriation without compensation, there was an immediate flight of foreign capital from Zimbabwe, which soon exhausted their foreign cash reserves and complicated international exchange. The Constitution signed during the Lancaster House Agreement promised the farmers full compensation for the land. So despite Mugabe's threats, the full-scale expropriations ultimately didn't happen, but the economy still took a major blow. Despite the continued demonization of the United Kingdom and colonial Colonialist influences, Mugabe once again approached the British government for aid related to land expropriation only to be rebuffed. The British said, We are willing to help, but only on the basis that land distribution should first of all be geared towards the poor people, that is, towards poverty alleviation. On November 14, 1997, the Zimbabwe dollar crashed in what has come to be known as Black Friday, losing 75% of its value against the US dollar in a single day. Originally, Mugabe intended to significantly raise taxes to pay for the recent agreed-to unfunded liabilities, but after significant protests, he simply monetized the debt and further eroded the value of his national currency, money printing. With mass uncertainty within the agricultural industry, food prices for staples like maize began to skyrocket, prompting Mugabe to institute price controls and to accuse industries of profiteering. Price controls inevitably lead to shortages, And since we're talking about staple food crops here, eventually famine. It's the same damn story every single time. The worst urban violence since independence happened in January 98 as food riots engulfed the population centers for several days. While Zimbabwe's citizenry took to the streets for the most shocking display of violence since independence, the government purchased 50 new Mercedes-Benz vehicles for Mugabe's cabinet members. Ultimately, Mugabe sent troops into the streets to quell the riot, but the damage was done. The stock exchange fell, and the Zimbabwe dollar plummeted yet again. Mugabe started to face increasing opposition from many sides, including labor unions and former staunch supporter Morgan Tsvangiri, but dismissed the challenges to his power. You have the misplaced belief that you are more powerful than the government. People must weigh themselves and see what they are good at. Some drive trains, some are foremen. People who witness the liberation struggle will not accept you as leaders. And, I mean, this is, we can get into all the details. The, the whole history of Zimbabwe from the 90s to the end of Mugabe's tenure, what do you have here? It's a grinding repetition. You whittle away the white population because you ignore the rule of law and you threaten them and, and so on. And then disasters happen because of the Marxist economy and then you blame more whites, which causes more whites to leave. And, and it's, um, it's, I don't know, it's crazy. So, yeah, disaster, blame whites, punish whites, lather, rinse, repeat. Mugabe continued to deprive white farmers of land following his racial agenda with utter disregard for the future of Zimbabwe. Once a breadbasket, a net food exporter, like the um, incredibly fertile land in Ukraine, Zimbabwe took in foreign receipts for 5.5 million people by 2003. By 2004, more than 3 million people, or 25% of the total population, had fled Zimbabwe, which, of course, was exactly the fears of South Africa. Mugabe continued his anti-white racist rhetoric. When he was running out of farmers, he turned his sights on white-owned businesses and white foreign nations. The government would make occasional offerings to white farmers, asking them to return, which was 2005 and 2015, but Mugabe remained ever opposed to white farmers. Mugabe also singled out Zimbabwe's small gay community, 
denouncing LGBT individuals as lower than dogs and pigs and ordering the expulsion of a gay organization from the Zimbabwe International Book Fair in 1995. So his claim was that homosexuality had been unknown in Africa before European colonization and blamed homosexuality for the AIDS crisis in Africa, when in fact it was heterosexual activity that was the main culprit or cause for AIDS in Africa. Now, of course, you know this like the Weimar Republic. Zimbabwe is infamous for its hyperinflation. So it took central banks in America... 100 years to devalue the U.S. dollar by over 90%, the Zimbabwe dollar had greater than 90% devaluations year over year and then month over month. The central bank issued several redenominations of the currency starting in 06 and ending in 09. The final revaluation in 09 resulted in a currency so worthless that you would need 10 septillion or 10 trillion trillion of them to exchange for one 2006 Zimbabwe dollar. Three years, right? Um, so get an idea of scale. So 10 septillion is a 1 followed by 25 zeros. Uh, Avogadro's constant is used in chemistry to measure the number of atoms or molecules in a mole of a substance. Its value is 6.02 times 10 to the power of 23. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it's a big number. In September 2008, Zimbabwe's inflation rate hit approximately... 471-000-000-000%. In November 2008, Zimbabwe's year-over-year inflation rate hit 89.7 sextillion percent. This <laughs> 90 would be crazy. So at this rate, prices for goods double every, every day. So in comparison, Weimar Germany's monthly inflation rate was 29,500% which is doubling of prices every 3.7 days. In January 2009, the government gave legal tender status to the U.S. dollar and South African rand, introducing some desperately needed stability into the Zimbabwean economy. And here, this is a logarithmic scale, um, as you can see. It was crazy, right? Inflation in the 90s was still excessive in the double digits percent year over year. Monthly inflation rates by the end were in the thousands of percent. Final monthly rate was 79.6 billion percent in November 2008, and then they just stopped publishing these statistics. Unofficial calculations put the rate in the aforementioned sextillions. It's actually kind of a fun word to say, but not a fun situation to experience at all. Despite the disastrous Mugabe seemingly never questioned his racism, his Marxism, or anything through the end of his reign. In February 2017, President Robert Mugabe commented on black land ownership and the fact that some black farmers have handed over management of their farms to dispossessed white farmers. Quote, Most of the land that used to be in the hands of the settlers is now in the hands of our own people. Stupid, stupid we as indeed we are doing that. There are some blacks who have really gone to sleep, and the whites have taken over once again, and it's sad, isn't it? How have we become the masters of our own economy? Or are we still, you know, thinking of whites as the best entrepreneurs and Africans as the laborers? Of course, the whites would be happy to see us continue to work for them. Again, this rage, right? For, you know, in just about every, in just about every international situation involving disparity, first thing to do is look up um, average IQ in the country. I mean, it's not the only thing, and there's lots of other factors. But if you don't have that, it's it's uh, you're missing a pretty key part. So, what happened? By the late 1990s, this is a quote from Cato. Productivity plummeted. Production of corn, Zimbabwe's main staple, fell by two-thirds. 
and the country swung from being a net food exporter to a basket case within a few years. Nearly one million black farm workers and their families lost their jobs and homes, according to a 2008 study by Zimbabwean economists for the UN Development Program. So remember earlier I was saying that it was the blacks who suffered. To a large degree, the whites could leave, usually go so elsewhere, but the black far- a million black farm workers lost their jobs and, and homes. The economy of Zimbabwe collapsed after 2000, resulting in widespread poverty and a 95% unemployment rate. From Cato again, commercial farmland lost an estimated three-quarters of its aggregate value between 2000 and 2001 alone as a result of lost property titles. That one-year loss, by my estimates, was $5.3 billion, more than three and a half times the amount of all the foreign aid given by the World Bank to Zimbabwe since its independence in 1980. Without equity in the banking system, vast networks of economic activity collapsed across all sectors of the economy. 700 companies closed by the end of 2001 as industrial production declined by 10.5% in 2001 and an estimated 17.5% in 2002. Quote, The Zimbabwean government has blamed the country's economic collapse on a variety of external factors, including Western conspiracies and racism. Mugabe's most potent excuse, however, proved to be the drought. As he reiterated at the United Nations summit in September 2005, Zimbabwe's economy is suffering because of continuous years of drought. In fact, dams in Zimbabwe were full throughout the economic downturn. Unfortunately, irrigation pipes are no longer owned by anyone, so they are being dug up for scrap in a free-for-all. Some are even melted down to make coffin handles. One of the few growth industries left in the country. So let's stop doing this, okay? Well, thank you so much for enjoying this latest free domain show on philosophy. And I'm going to be frank and ask you for your help, your support, your encouragement, and your resources. Please like, subscribe, and share, and all of that good stuff to get philosophy out into the world. And also, equally importantly, go to freedomain.com forward slash donate to help out the show, to give me the resources that I need to bring more and better philosophy to an increasingly desperate world. So thank you so much for your support, my friends. freedomain.com forward slash donate.